But here we are, week two in this series that we are looking at the subject of hope. And if you missed last week, uh, you can still check that out online. I want to tell you one of the good things that we can know for sure about this season, this coronavirus season. It's not going to last forever. There'll be an end to it. And so we have hope. A day is coming when we, were, we will no longer be counting infection rates and illnesses and death counts like some kind of cruel, awful game. A day is coming when we'll all emerge from our shelters and old friends will get to hug each other again and little children will go running into their grandparents' arms the way they're supposed to and office colleagues will gather around the coffee machine and lunch tables and they will, they will gossip and laugh. And athletes and artists, they will play again to packed stadiums. And restaurants will host customers who crowd around a table to enjoy food and drink and laughter together. At grocery stores, the shelves will be full and the checkout aisles will be empty instead of the opposite way around. Students once more will fill their classrooms and they'll complain about tests and they'll get to go to proms and, and be with friends. Weddings will be rescheduled and businesses will restart and people will be able to return to their old jobs, we hope. And the church, our church, will have a chance to gather once again to worship and to laugh and to sing and to pray and to greet each other and to learn and drink coffee and, and eat sacramental donuts together and, and hear a sermon that will be so pent up by that point that it'll be two hours long and everybody will listen and no one will complain, I hope. <laughs> a day is coming. And I'm not sure when, but the day is coming when things will be different and everything that feels so terribly wrong about today will be fixed. But in the meantime, we hope. We hope because that's what keeps us going. Hope for tomorrow is what enables us to endure all the problems that we feel today. The Zoom meetings and the spotty internet and the quarantines and that black market for toilet paper. You know, at the very beginning of this crisis, one person was so desperate that they snuck into the church and they took all the toilet paper from our bathrooms. They stole Jesus' toilet paper. You know who you are. <laughs> it's hope, in the end, that enables us to endure these days of being cooped up. Same old people, same old space, day after day after day. But a day is coming. And we may not know when. But it's coming, and we know, and somehow just thinking about, us, about that day, it gets us through. So we're trying in this series to become students of hope, not just for our own sakes, but so that we can become agents of hope for other people. A theologian and author, a man by the name of Lewis Smedes, wrote, wrote last century that that hope is like a cord that's woven together with three strands. The first is imagination. I form in my mind a picture that I'm hoping for, and I think about it. I make it vivid. The second is desire. What it is that I'm picturing is something that I hunger for. I want it. And then the third strand is belief. I believe that what I'm hoping for 
is coming, or at least that it's possible. And you use those three actions together, imagination, desire, and belief, to build hope. When I imagine something more vividly than I'd hoped for, I I imagine being a more courageous person or having a a more solid marriage or, or becoming more proficient at a second language or becoming a better person of prayer. Whatever it is, I take the time to imagine it. And I think about it. Maybe I even write it down and I reflect on why it's a worthy goal in my life. And I consider all the reasons that make it possible and and start to think about the actions that I could pursue that might make it happen. And when you take the time to imagine and reflect on these things more vividly, and you desire them more deeply and you believe them more clearly, you hope more strongly. Hope isn't easy. The Apostle Paul, he brought about a revolution of hope in the world. And we're going to learn how in this message. But Paul put hope like this. This is Romans 8, 24. He said, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently. We wait for it desirely. We, we wait for it earnestly. Hope, you know, by very definition, hope requires a level of uncertainty. If I already have it, I don't have to hope for it. One of the modern researchers on the subject or the theme of hope put it this way. We live in time. We stand here at point A in time. But we're always moving towards a future over here at point B. And we have hopes and dreams and desires for what that might look like, big ones. Like, I want to build a great relationship. I want to have a great job. I, I want to change the world. Or, or maybe little ones, like, tonight I'd like to be in charge of the remote control for a change. But whatever happens, somewhere between point A and point B, hardships come. They might be minor ones, little irritations or interruptions. They might be major ones, like a global pandemic, economic recession, illness, or loss. But world-class hopers, the writer says, world-class hopers have the ability to persist and keep faith and cling to what matters, and they find a way to move from A to B. Because that's what hope can do. To be a world-class hoper means that I have in my life goals that are worthwhile, even noble, and I don't give up on them, and I don't set them aside, and I bring this sense of, of expectancy and eagerness into every day. I bring a sense of life into other people, because hope is infectious, isn't it? Hope will improve your studying and your work and your relationships and your soul. But it also will do that for the people around you. Now, one of the great places to start, actually, is just with an honest assessment of how we're doing today. Your current level of hopefulness. We want to help give you a clearer picture of where you are. So we've included in the notes. If you downloaded the notes that went out with the link to the website, or you can find them on the church's website this morning, you'll find in the notes on the back two pages a hope assessment tool. 
takes just a minute or two to fill out. And what it'll do is give you a starting point for the series. So if you're watching this right now with somebody beside you, just sort of elbow them in the side and say, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. But just don't do it right now. Commit to doing it after the message, later in the day, later in the week. And then alongside the tool, we want to give you a prayer, a daily prayer, a series prayer. Every time we gather in this series, we're going to offer this prayer together. It's a prayer that we find in Scripture in Romans, in chapter 15, in verse 13. And maybe you'll want to pray this with me. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to become, isn't it? Hope overflowers. What I'd like to do in the time left in this message is talk specifically about how Christian hope gets you from A to B, how it's different just from mere optimism or positive thinking. I'm going to start with a a real-life story. You might remember this in the headlines last year. Don Giuseppe Berardelli, a priest in the small village in Italy, Casnigo, he turned 72 years old in 2020, and he was still running around on a red motorbike. He was known for his cheerful smile. One family said when, when they lost their father to illness, he became like a surrogate dad for the children, and he brought hope and security into their home. When coronavirus swept through the village, he got sick, and because of his age, it made him vulnerable. And there was a severe shortage of medical equipment at that time, but because the people in his parish loved him so much, they all pitched together and they bought him a ventilator. But he didn't use it. He gave it up so that it could be used to save another patient, a stranger to him. And a short time later, Father Don died. And if you're listening to the message today, and maybe you're having a hard time believing in God or, or sort of getting your hands around this whole Jesus thing, you might just want to start by acknowledging that simple act of love. It's not what you might consider a very optimistic act, but it was a profoundly hope-filled one. And here's the difference. We're going to put two definitions out in front of you. The first is optimism. Now, to be clear, I think optimism is a good quality. Optimism is a predisposition to expect that things will turn out well. It's kind of a personality trait. It's focused on circumstances. But beyond optimism, there is this other attribute. It's a virtue. It's the Christian virtue of hope. And while it feels like maybe it encompasses optimism, it's rooted in something much deeper. And let's try and tease that out a little bit. During the Cold War in Czechoslovakia, Vaclav Havel split his time between being a political prisoner and doing state-imposed menial labor. But he was also known as the poet of hope for the Czech people. And when the wall finally came down and the Czech Republic was finally free, 
He became its first democratically elected president. And he was asked what, he, what kept him going through all of those dark years. And here's what he said, and it's, it's worth listening to. He said, hope is this deep and powerful sense. It's not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for success. But it's the ability to work for something because it's good and right, not just because it has a chance to succeed. He goes on, he says, the more unpromising the situation in which we demonstrate that hope, the deeper the hope is. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. It's the conviction that something will turn out well. It's not just the conviction that something will turn out well, but it's the certainty that something makes sense, regardless even of how it turns out. And this is how he ends. He says, in short, I think the deepest and most important form of hope, the only one that can keep us above water and urge us to good work, and the only true source of that breathtaking dimension of the human spirit and all of its efforts is something that we get, as it were, from elsewhere. So this morning we're going to talk about that elsewhere. We want to be optimistic about how things might turn out, but that's not really the bedrock of Christian hope. Think about the psalmist. Think about what it is that he says, that he sings, that he cries out, not when times are great and he's filled with optimism, but when he's crushed. He says, Psalm 42, 11, put your hope in God. He would never say, put your optimism in God. Paul writes in a similar vein in Romans 15, in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace so that you can overflow with hope. He doesn't say, may the God of optimism fill you so that you can overflow. Hope transcends. It moves beyond circumstances. Hope is something we get, as it were, from elsewhere. When Paul wrote those words in Romans 5, it's important to acknowledge that most people in the ancient world, especially those living in Rome, they wouldn't have thought about hope as any kind of a virtue. Hope was disparaged. And here's why. They preferred instead a, a kind of stoic resolve in the face of adversity. Hope was considered by most people in the ancient world as a kind of moral disease, as a form of weakness. Now, nowadays, largely because of the Jesus movement, hope has become such a positive word that it's hard to imagine anybody belittling it, but in the ancient world, they did. So I want to look with you for just a minute or two at at hope and about why it was so disparaged in the ancient world. And then you'll be in a great position to understand the breathtaking words that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 15, that prayer that we prayed, in Romans chapter 5 and 8 that we'll look at in this message. Now the big issue in the ancient world, as it is still today, is how we're going to deal with suffering. How do we deal with adversity in life? What is it that we do when we're standing here at point A, but 
But poverty or a virus or recession or death robs us of the future that we want there at point B. Well, the ancient writers generally said that what you must learn to do is count on the one sure foundation that is always dependably there for you, and that is you. Not in, not in the world, not on others, not on gods, not on close friends, but you, and specifically on your own capacity to reason. It's a desire, the hope for things, just sets you up for misery. Sometimes kids dream about being professional athletes. I dreamt of, I dreamt of being a great hockey player, and then I realized I couldn't, stay, I couldn't skate, and so thank God I lowered my expectations. I dreamed for a time about being the smartest kid in school, and then reality set in, and thank God I lowered my standards. Sometimes kids dream about dating and marrying the most beautiful person in the world. I had that one too. And then reality set in. And thank God Karina lowered her standards. (laughs) But this is why in ancient Rome, one of the most common practices in education, in moral education, involved what were called hardship lists. People would write out a little catalog of sufferings. They would train themselves to stop hoping for things by making a list of all the bad things that might happen to them in their life. And in doing that, they would acknowledge that you can't hope in the world, that you can't hope in the gods, that you can't even depend on your friends or your family. Now, in spite of all that, in the ancient world, They knew, as we do, that suffering might be easier if it was shared with other people, but there were limits, and they were clear limits. One of the noblest themes in Paul's day was the idea of a friend who was willing to sacrifice and perhaps even die for another friend. They would write plays about these little puppet theaters, and the crowds would gather and watch them. And when that moment of ultimate sacrifice came, they would weep and they would applaud because this was, this was the heartbeat of what they longed for. But there were limits to this, clear limits. One limit is the person that you died for had to be a person of great value. It must be worthy of your sacrifice to die for an unworthy person That's a sucker's game. You must separate yourself from unvirtuous, unworthy people. Another limit was that in the midst of that sacrifice, you must not, you must never allow any of their suffering to disturb your own tranquility. Distance yourself, separate yourself emotionally from their pain, even as you are sacrificing on their behalf, because you don't want to let anything sort of crack that stoic resolve you have in facing the world. When anything did crack through, the ancients had a word for that. Whether it was vicarious grief that you felt on another person's behalf or your own, but they had a word for it. And they it was a condescending word. They called it groaning. Groaning. Groaning was what weak people did. Groaning was for losers. We know about groaning, right? You get rejected on a date, oh. You get turned down for promotion, oh. You had your hopes up and then, oh. But the ancient world, they were strongly anti-groaning. Three of their greatest writers, 
Epictetus. He wrote, no good man ever groans. Plutarch said groaning is a sign of weakness. Cicero taught it's a disgrace to groan. Instead, they said that if you could master your spirit and your emotions and become self-reliant, so much so that circumstances would never bother you, then you had won the ultimate honor. You had, and this is the word they would use, you had conquered. All of this, all of this is going to set up what Paul is about to say. By the way, the Greek word for conquer is a good one. Nikau. Nikau, which is where we get the word Nike. Yeah, like the company. Conquered. And so the wise sages in the ancient world say that while lesser men might prize conquering a city or an army or an athletic rival or the markets, the truly wise person in the ancient world would know better. The real conquering means conquering the inner opponents. My reason, my stoic resolve allows me to conquer all worry and anxiety and fear about suffering. That's why hope wasn't a prized commodity. It was considered by some in the ancient world to be, as we mentioned, like a disease, like an infection of the soul. It meant you were depending on something undependable outside of yourself. Greek historian Thucydides said that those who hope do so because they have a tragically poor understanding of the world. Now this, this world of wealth and power and philosophers and kings it's all about to be turned upside down by a tent-making penniless prisoner a prisoner of the empire a man whose name you may know as Paul Paul too is going to say something about human suffering and Paul's going to begin with words that would have been absolutely familiar to any of the great teachers in ancient Rome. Listen to what he says in Romans 5, in verse 3. He said, we rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character. And you can imagine all the wise sages of Rome saying, amen, true, absolutely true. And they would applaud and they would nod accordingly. Yep, that's the way it works. Suffering produces perseverance, which produces character. But then... Then Paul gets to the next line. And character produces hope. No, no. No, Paul. No. Too far. Hope will disappoint you. Hope will let you down. But listen to what Paul says. This hope, this Jesus hope, does not disappoint. Because God has poured out his love into us, into our hearts, through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. See, the, the reason that the ancients didn't believe in hope for human beings is that they didn't believe in any hope for the universe as a whole. They really thought that creation, that the world was just an endless cycle of all the ups and downs. It wasn't really leading anywhere. But Paul disagrees. Paul brings from Israel and supremely from Jesus the teaching that the universe had a great start. Point A was terrific. In the beginning, God created, and it was good. And it's all leading someplace. It, it has a point B, and it's good. 
And the prophets called that point B the kingdom of God, or sometimes shalom, that, that place where everything that, that's not the way it's supposed to be, that's so messed up, gets set right. And Paul would say that between point A and point B, the reason that it's so messed up, the reason that the goal has been so frustrated, has everything to do with with sin and violence and injustice. But he would say even more importantly, that because God is a God of hope, he doesn't give up easily. And that hope has found a way through. And that it came at a cost, at a great cost at a cost that would shock the world. Now at last we're we're ready to listen to what Paul said. Let's start in Romans chapter 5. You'll want to have your Bibles open for this. Romans 5 verses 6 through 8. You see, Paul writes, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Remember the background we just talked about? Even though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why is it that Christian hope will not disappoint It's not because things will turn out a certain way. Uh, Not because everything goes the way that I want. It's not because I've conquered all of my emotions through all sufficient reason. Hope doesn't disappoint because Jesus, as an act of amazing grace for people just as sin-stained and sin-damaged as me, that for them Jesus chose to give his life. And if we ever really understood that, we would be on our feet just like those crowds around a puppet theater in ancient Rome, applauding and cheering and weeping because there is no better news. That's why hope doesn't disappoint. Jesus died not just for virtuous people, not for worthy people, but for messed up sinful people like you and me. The answer to human suffering in the end is not an isolated, self-sufficient, stoic, all-powerful reason. And it's not flights of fantasy that manage or imagine that the world is always going to be perfect and beautiful. The answer to human suffering in the end is love. Love that agonizes out of anguished concern. And the heart of God the source of that love, the foundation of all reality. Why? Because none of us, none of us are supremely and serenely self-sufficient. We groan. I don't know whether you have people in your house that groan. I groan. I hear groans. I often hear them early in the morning when the alarm goes off too early. But we groan. Part of the message of Christian hope is that we don't groan alone. Writers, both in ancient times and modern times, use what's sometimes called 
the pathetic fallacy. Any of you remember that from, from English class, from literature? The pathetic fallacy attributes human emotions to nature. It's like a Disney movie when Bambi's mother dies. I suppose, spoiler alert, sorry about that. Bambi's mother dies. And it starts to rain as if the earth itself is crying. Paul says there's a reason why we gravitate to that, why that keeps popping up in literature across the centuries, and it's rooted in a reality. Listen to what he says. Turn with me in Romans 8, verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been what? Groaning. Groaning as if in the pains of childbirth from now right up to the present time. Creation groans. In verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly our own adoption. We too, I mean we, the, the failures, the rejects, we groan. But it's okay Because it's not just creation, and it's not just us. Get a load of this. The Spirit of God, it says, groans himself, intercedes for us, groans with words that cannot express what's really going on. Are you kidding me? I mean, a groaning God? A God who chooses to share so intimately with suffering and weakness and pain to do it with people as unworthy as you and me. And in the end, it's not just that. What we glory in is precisely God's willingness to suffer. Remember that for the ancients, it's a wise man who would separate himself from the unworthy and separate those himself from, from the pain, the emotional pain of others, so it wouldn't affect their own tranquility. They would avoid groaning. So look what Paul does here. Paul writes two more hardship lists. They come in the eighth chapter of Romans. And he puts them here to unprecedented use. It had never been done before. He doesn't glory in how hardships display our virtues like the Stoics would. He doesn't glory in how hardships grow those virtues the way the ancients would. would. He, He doesn't really talk about virtue here at all. But here's what he says. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nothing in all creation. Now there's a hardship list. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We glory in our friend. We revel in our friend. Because we are headed on our journey from A to B towards something infinitely better than just self-protection from suffering. No matter what your hardship list is, and you will have one, and it will probably grow. Therefore, whenever you reach the end of your rope and you have a rope and it has an end, 
You've been invited by God into an adventure that is unimaginably greater and nobler than just looking for personal tranquility. The attainment of of an emotionally manageable, of a neat and tidy, pleasant little life. That's not the reason that you and I walk on this groaning planet. You remember how the ancients used that word Nike? They said that a conqueror is one who had mastered their emotions, maintained tranquility, grown impersonal in the face of a world that was always broken. That's what a conqueror was. Listen to what Paul says. He doesn't even hint at that idea. I've learned not to let the world get at me. He says, no. This is chapter 8, verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than. When you understand now, it's not just a catchy phrase. It's really quite deliberate. We're not conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Not through you and me, not through our own power, not because we live triumphant, pain-free lives, not because we've figured it all out. No, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. That's the magnificent view of human history that simply overwhelmed the ancient world captivated human hearts, produced a hope that would lead people to suffer and sacrifice and sometimes die for a noble cause like no other vision. It's hope. It's hope not just for you and not just for now, but for the world and for creation, that things will not always be the way they are now. A day is coming, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. We don't know when, we don't know how, but the day is coming. When death and sin and pain and guilt are conquered and groaning, groaning will finally, thank God, be over. And because the day is coming, you keep hope alive. You keep it alive precisely in your pain and in your suffering and in your groaning and in your marriage. You keep it alive in your family, in your singleness, in your job or in your joblessness. You keep it alive in your home or in your homelessness, in your strength, your weakness, your faith, your doubt, in your moments of clarity, in your moments of confusion, in your growth and in your guilt. And you hold on to your friend Jesus because nothing can separate you from him. And you pray. And when you can't pray, you groan. And when you can't groan, you get someone to groan with you. And when none of you can do it, you hold on to the assurance that the Spirit of God is doing it for you. And so you wake up in the morning and you do it in hope. And you work in hope and you play in hope and you pray in hope and you live in hope and you speak in hope. And when you go to bed tonight, you sleep in hope. Can you imagine being an authentically hopeful person? Can you want it? Can you want it more than anything else? Can you believe it? Can you believe it deeply and clearly and rationally that hope will grow? I hope you'll join us next week as we're learning how to grow hope. And hopefully we'll do it live on Sunday morning.
And we'll see you then. Hope be with you. And God bless.